वंदे श्री कृष्ण चैतन्य नित्यानंदसोदित गोरदाई पुष्पवंत चित्रो संदोत्मनुदो आदुनुलंबतो भुजो कनकाबदातो संकीर्तनायक पितरो कमलायतक्षो विश्वंभरो द्विजबरो युगधर्मपालो वंदे जगत प्रिय करो करुणावतारो श्री हरि नाम प्रभु की जय गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जय गुरु भक्तवृंद की जय वेलकम एवरीवन सो टुनाइट वी कंटिन्यूइंग आवर डिस्कशन इन चैप्टर 2 आफ्टर वन ईयर एंड वी गॉट टाइम प्लेटी ऑफ टाइम नो हरी नो हरी एंड दैट शुड बी योर अप्रोच टू आल्सो टू रीडिंग दिस बुक दिस इज माय हंबल रेकमेंडेशन दैट यू रीड इट केयरफुली एंड with a studious approach because you'll find in reading it that it was written in such a way as to lend to that it's very conducive for that for cross-referencing within the text and getting a, a kind of a grip on how the whole text works verse to verse chapter to chapter it's organic and systematic nature which is one of the things that just fascinated me as I was uh, writing and studying the various commentaries So here today in the second chapter, just to review briefly, the second chapter begins with a description by Sanjaya of Arjun's state of depression carried over from the previous chapter, which is called Vishadha Yoga, the yoga of depression, the yoga of despair. And while Sanjaya related the extent of that with references back to the first chapter, Krishna responds in verse 2, and three, and he admonishes Arjun for having a weakness of heart and said it's not becoming of a person of his character, an Aryan and so forth. He encouraged him to take up the task at hand. Arjun responded with a somewhat of a rebuttal, a carryover from his logic and reasoning and what we really determined in our study of the first chapter, his rationalization of his material attachments, sputtering along, making a, a last kind of ditch effort to to get Krishna to agree with him that the, it wasn't a worthy cause, that he shouldn't fight. But he wasn't successful. He couldn't convince himself even. Before he started his continued resistance, carried over from the first chapter, Krishna had, in the third verse, had dismissed every argument in one verse that Arjun had put forward. So he, he kind of came back, as I say, once again, to, to try, but he, did, he wasn't successful. And he lost heart in the midst of giving further reasoning, for the most part, religious reasoning as to why he shouldn't fight, why he should be inactive, why he should not take action with regard to the war, why he should be nonviolent, And, as I say, he wasn't uh, really successful in convincing himself. He kind of threw up his hands and he surrendered to Krishna and said, Oh, Krishna, I really don't know what's best for me. I put myself in your hands. You are my guru. You, you please instruct me. I'm not going to fight, but I put myself in your hands. The fact of the matter, of course, is that he doesn't fight, really. There is no battle of Kurukshetra, and there is a battle of Kurukshetra at the same time. And uh, we'll discuss that at some length tonight, relevant as it is to the section under discussion, which was prefaced in the previous darshan here by the discussion of Krishna's Upanishadic wisdom and first real speech of the Gita. Krishna first, after admonishing Arjuna and hearing his half-baked arguments resurface, He took the whole affair to the level of the soul. He went very high, in a sense, from religious considerations to spiritual considerations. Religious life is that human life that's colored by a godly brush, tinted by the, some godliness and connecting all human activities with divinity. But the emphasis on humanity rather than divinity. 
And spiritual life then is about the life of the soul, which is different from the body. And it encourages us to transcend humanity, all of its problems and all of its apparent joys. So Krishna took the argument so high from where Arjuna was speaking. And he made these kind of statements like, nobody's killed, the soul lives forever, nobody slays, nobody's slain. Very lofty, Upanishadic type of wisdom. And this is, in the Gita's terminology, is called Sankhya. It's a big word, and that has various meanings in the Gita. And it will be discussed in the next session, when Krishna labels his discussion as such, as Sankhya, and begins to speak about yoga, which is the second, really, half of this chapter. But basically, it was an, an analytical study of the nature of being of the self and the difference between the self and matter. And so here, Krishna has Arjuna kind of hovering beyond his adhikar's eligibility. He's a warrior, and at this point, Krishna's got him in a kind of mystic illusion, and he's hardly a Vedantist. He has demonstrated, however, sufficiently that he is very well-versed in Dharma, which is generally a prerequisite for entering into spiritual life. From a religious foundation of morality and ethical outlook and approach to life, having our human life, as I say, colored with a godly brush, then there's good prospect and hope that we'll come up from that to a spiritual orientation to life. And of course, if we get good company, that's very likely, even if we don't have a religious background, such as the power of, of good company, sadhu sangha. So we should always try to keep that. But Arjun, as an ideal example, was a very religious person. He made very good religious arguments. He demonstrated that he knew Dharma. He understood the principles of Dharma. And so he was qualified in one sense, at least to begin to hear about Brahman, from Dharma Jignasu, inquiry about religious life, to Brahma Jignasu, inquiry about spiritual life. Krishna gave him a fair amount to think about. And Arjuna is, as I say, kind of hovering there, grappling with those ideas. And now Krishna brings him down a little bit to his present reality. And he's going to address further Arjuna's resistance now directly. He indirectly addressed his resistance by not answering his questions about Dharma that he's voiced in this chapter and why it would be irreligious to fight. He just took it to the level of the soul. Now he comes back down and he's going to address those arguments directly. And this is significant because Beginning here with text 30, up until text 38, the section under discussion tonight, Krishna speaks about what would be termed today, popularly, a jihad, a holy war. And he encourages Arjuna to take part in it. And it's interesting to note that a lot of people think that that's what the Bhagavad Gita is about, about a holy war. And it's important to note that this section here of eight verses are the only verses, really, in which Krishna speaks about this principle out of 700. Principle of fighting, because it's a religious thing to do, and you should do it because it's a holy war. Eight verses out of 700. And they're grouped together in one section, and they end on the note that the Bhagavad Gita is really about. They end on the note of yoga and spiritual practice. So let us go through them and we'll discuss this important point at some length because, as I say, many people think the Bhagavad Gita is about the Holy War. In fact, I was asked, as some of you know, to write an article about violence in the Bhagavad Gita for a book that's going to be published by some university press consisting of various articles from different scholars on this topic, violence in the Bhagavad Gita. 
someone who's written from Gandhi's point of view and someone from the opposite point of view of Aurobindo and a number of different articles. I haven't seen them all. Mine is positioned to be the last article in the book and the editor wanted it to be kind of like the icing on the cake, or so to speak, <laughs> of the uh, discussion. And who better to call on than a Gaudiya Vaishnava for something sweet? Krishna, what can be drawn from the Bhagavad Gita? Actually, uh, I've just finished that article, so it's a little on my mind. It just so happens that these verses are uh, significant in that article in making my case that uh, there's no violence in the Bhagavad Gita or that there, I should say better, that there is no violence in the violence of Bhagavad Gita. It's very tricky spiritual life and Gaudiya Vaishnavism is particularly full of these contradictory ideas, one and different at the same time. I'd like to say about the Battle of Kurukshetra that there, there was no war and there was a war both, yes and no, if we were to ask the question, was there really a war? Yes and no. And that there can be, as is directly mentioned by Krishna in Gita, there can be inaction and action and action and inaction. There can be violence in nonviolence and nonviolence within violence. Both of these principles are taught in the Bhagavad Gita. Arjuna actually advocates nonviolence, and Krishna teaches your advocacy of nonviolence is violence. And Krishna advocates violence, the war, and he teaches, in my advocacy of violence, there's no violence. So this sounds Upanishadic, <laughs> kind of mysterious. We have to look beneath the surface of these apparent contradictions and, and resolve them. And that's what the Bhagavad Gita is about. So uh, these verses, as I say, happen to come to my mind in terms of the article because they are the really only verses in the Gita where Krishna directly implores Arjuna to fight for religious purposes. Everywhere else that he seems to say something like that, for example, in the third chapter, if we study it in context, we see what he's really talking about there is karma yoga, which is not an argument that Arjuna should apply himself in terms of his dharma as a warrior in a socio-religious setting of the Gita and reap the fruits of heaven and... Uh, and so forth. No, karma yoga is about something else. Karma yoga is, is taking us in the direction from religious life to spiritual life. And according to the Gita, it's the first step from religious life towards the spiritual and experiential life, where we start to dismantle our sense of self based on our attachments. We don't do that really very much with religious life. Not really very much at all. A little bit. We sacrifice in religious life for getting a bigger piece of the illusion. We adhere to religious principles and thereby adjust our life and make some sacrifice so that we can get some material gain, so that we can go to heaven. So it's really not about dismantling our false sense of self. If we're involved in it, we may be a prime target, so to speak, for a sadhu, a saintly person to approach. Seeing a pious person, a sadhu will approach and think, he'll listen to what I have to say, he's a religious person. But in and of itself, this piety in religious life is, as the Gita explains, is, is like a roller coaster, up and down, up and down, go to heaven, come back, go to heaven, come back, go to heaven, come back. But when we step in the direction of karma yoga, we step in the direction of dismantling our sense of self, because our sense of self is based on our attachments. And in karma yoga, what Krishna tells Arjuna to do is, be a warrior, be yourself, do what you feel, you should do based on your physio-psychological makeup. Keep that half of the equation, but the results that you derive from your actions, give that up. Start giving that up and giving that for the spiritual cause. Give that to the center. 
So as you can see, this is about then dismantling your sense of self, which is all about our material attachments. This is the task at hand in the Bhagavad Gita to begin with. And so even when Krishna makes some statements about you should fight and it's proper, it's dharma and so forth in the third chapter, if you look at it in context, he's really teaching Arjuna what he needs to hear about yoga at that time, about spiritual practice. But here, and there's some discussion in the 18th chapter too, which is basically part of the summary of the text. We study what's said there about fighting for uh, dharma's sake. We also find is really just, as I say, summarizing the text. This is a very minimal aspect of the Gita, religious life. People don't read the Bhagavad Gita for information on socio-religious life. People read the Bhagavad Gita in modern society, and I would venture to say at all times, for spiritual inspiration. It is in the Mahabharata as a chapter, which is a religious book about Dharma and so forth. The book without the Bhagavad Gita is not about dismantling your attachments and your ego sense of self, but Bhagavad Gita placed in there gives the Mahabharata a special position because it's Ditopanishad. It's about the soul. It's about the plight of the soul from text one till the finish through 18 chapters. It's about the plight of the soul and its highest prospect. How to solve its immediate problem of bodily identification and all that goes with that to show how insignificant all the problems of our life are up to the point of even death. In Bhagavad Gita's teaching, it's not a big deal if you know who you are. It just shows to the extent we don't know who we are because we're troubled by so many little things that happen in our everyday life, so many little problems that, that come. So this is what the text is about. It's not about a, a battle, a jihad, a religious war. There is a battle of Kurukshetra. Krishna wants Arjuna to take part in it, but what is that battle? What kind of battle is that? What's that all about? What, In other words, what does Krishna really want Arjuna to take part in? Does he want Arjuna just to be a religious man and go to heaven? Hardly. That's the idea of the jihad. Here he speaks along those lines only because why? Because he answers Arjuna's every question. Sometimes we'll ask the guru a question, our teacher, and he may or she may not appear to give an answer. You just say something else. As if he didn't understand your question or wasn't concerned. But often what we find sometime down the road, suddenly the answer to that question will come out. He'll give you the answer. He wanted to say something else at that time, which he felt was more pertinent. But he heard your question, and later on he when the time is appropriate, by his his own consideration, give the answer. You may have had this experience. <laughs> I had I had that experience. So the answer may, may come directly, it may come indirectly, externally, internally, as may be the case. What Krishna did here, Arjun voiced these reservations earlier in this chapter based on religious considerations, and it appears that Krishna more or less ignored him. He just took the thing to a higher plane. Because he wanted to say, this is really what we're going to talk about here. We're going to talk about the soul. This is the topic I'm concerned with. But Arjuna's not quite ready to go all the way there. Krishna has to teach him how to go step by step by step by step. So he brings him down now and answers the questions that Arjuna asked earlier. The basic thrust of Arjuna's questions were, in this chapter, as, a, as I say, a follow-through from the previous chapter, that if I fight in the war, it will bring about irreligion. It will be a, an act of overwhelming violence. So many people will be killed. So many warriors will be killed. Who will be left to take care of their wives, their children? He saw this war has the potential to wipe out a dynasty. You know that it's considered that 640 million people died in the Battle of Kurukshetra. 
that's more people than died in all the uh, wars of modern history in the world combined. And they died in an area of 80 miles in circumference per Kshetra. 640 million people died in, it's a little unbelievable, in 18 days. And the weapons were bows and arrows propelled by mantras that had nuclear capacity, nuclear capacity, sophisticated nuclear weapons that could be blown up in one place and, and not kill innocent people. We have to discuss this at some length. We have to come to understand how this could take place. Did this take place? Even as do all these, we may start to question at some point in our lives. Arjun thought it took place. He thought it was about to take place. He thought there were many people arrayed there on both sides, and there was great potential for, for death and devastation. And he did not want to take part in it. He thought it was irreligious. And as I said earlier, Krishna disagrees 108%. Now what he wants to say, first of all, in a very basic sense in this section, is that while you say it will be irreligious to fight, I say to you, it will be irreligious not to fight. So on religious terms now, because Arjun made those kind of arguments, Krishna will reply. He says, Swadharmam api chaviksha navi kompitomarasi dharmyadhi yudachchayo yat chatriyasya navidyate. In consideration of your dharma as a warrior, you should not hesitate, for there is nothing more righteous for a warrior than to fight for dharma itself. This is right out of the Middle East. This is right out of Bin Laden's training camps. This is how it will be read in modern times. Yadrichchaya chupapanam svargadvaram apabritam. Sukina chatriya parta labhante yuddham idrisham. O parta, warriors who get such an opportunity for battle by good fortune rejoice, for this opens the gates of heaven for them. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> These are the kind of things people think, oh, this is what the Bhagavad Gita is about. Atachetvam imam dharmyam sangramam na karishasi tatasvadharmam girtim cha hitva papam abhapshasi. However, if you do not fight in this righteous war, having avoided your own dharma as a warrior, you will incur evil and lose your good reputation. Just the opposite of what you think. Akirtim chapi bhutani katayi shanti tevayam sam pavitasya chakirtir maranad atirichite. People will always speak of your infamy, and for a respectable person, dishonor is worse than death. Bayad ranad uparatam mamsyantetvam maharata yesham chatvam bhu mato bhutva yasyasi laghavam. The great warriors will think that you have left the battle out of fear, and thus those who once held you in high esteem will no longer take you seriously. Avachavadam cha bahun vadishyanti tabahita nindantas tabasam artyam tato dukartaram nukim. Your enemies will speak the unspeakable of you, decrying your ability. What could be more painful than that? Hatova prapsyasi svargam jitva va bhokshase mahim tasmad utishtakunteya yudhayat kritanishchaya. O son of Kunti, either you will die in the battle and go to heaven, or having won the battle, you will enjoy the earth. Therefore, stand with resolve and fight. And the concluding verse in this section, Sukuduke same kritva labha labho jaya jayu toto yudhaya yudhyasva naibam papam abhapsyasi Considering pleasure and pain, gain and loss, 
victory and defeat to be equal. Prepare yourself for battle without fear of incurring sin. So as you can see, these are all religious points. He's saying because you're a warrior, this is your dharma, you should fight, it's a religious war, you'll go to heaven, you won't incur sin. If you don't fight, you will incur sin because you won't do your religious dharma and so forth. And again, these are the kind of arguments that fueled this recent terrorist attack on the United States. And therefore, as I mentioned the book that I was asked to write an article for, Violence in the Bible Gita's University Press apparently thought it was a marketable idea in consideration of the times. But it's, as I say, hardly the thrust of the Bhagavad Gita. Here we have eight verses along these lines, and they're spoken by Krishna simply because he's replying directly to Arjuna's arguments on a level of dharma. You want to talk dharma? Krishna's saying, okay, let's talk dharma. According to dharma, you should fight. It's a religious war. You'll go to heaven. This is what scripture says, and so forth. If you don't fight, you'll incur sin. You should fight. This is why he's responding like this. Other than that, we can say any emphasis on dharma in Bhagavad Gita is for the sake of telling us that, as I mentioned earlier, spiritual life should either grow out of a religious and pious foundation or if one is able to take the spiritual life from the position of impiety, having gotten good association with a sadhu, like many of us, then in the course of cultivating that spiritual life, we should look to see that religious considerations are developing within us. Moral, ethical, whatever might be included in the basic religious ideal, it should be developing in us. We don't skip over that. Some of us may not have been schooled in it. We may have been living an impious life, even the sadhu came and picked us up. It may, so we've got the good fortune to take up the spiritual life, but you can't just skip over this and think you'll make your appearance in Goloka Vrindavan. Uh, everything that Krishna speaks about in Bhagavad Gita that's a result of practicing a particular discipline is all part and parcel of bhakti. The results of all of those should come within one who's engaged in bhakti. So we should look practically for results. Don't look for Krishna dancing outside your window. Look for other things to develop in you that other people might have even though they're not devotees. They didn't get the fortune for whatever reason. Bhakti Devi is independent. She goes where she likes. To be touched by the mercy of Bhakti Devi and get Shraddha in Krishna in such a high ideal and therefore have a connection with that and have that possibility in one's life. Not even a possibility, a surety of what you will attain with certainty. They haven't got that good fortune. We are very fortunate to have come in touch with such a, a sadhu. But we may see things in others that are obviously desirable qualities, religious, pious, kind-heartedness, that's not even in us. So we should look to see that those things come within us as a result of our practice. And gradually other things will come. Mystic insight will come, detachment will come, ability to really practice will come. To actually sit and chant japa without thinking about anything else, without trying not to think about anything else. Chant Hare Krishna, mind goes to Krishna. When we are like that, then oh, higher topics, which are a curiosity of ours now, will be relevant to us. And, you know, curiosity is dangerous. So we have been cautioned about that. Now we shouldn't develop a neurosis about higher topics and negativity towards them altogether. There's some place for hearing about that, but as we develop, and as we develop to this point, as I'm saying, well, we can actually sit, and not in kirtan. It came to my mind after the kirtan that we had tonight stopped. An instance, years ago, some of my godbrothers went to sit with Akinchen Krishnadas Babaji Maharaj at maybe 
I thought it was Imlital, but anyway, some sacred place where he was going to sit up all night and chant in the Vrindavan forest for observance of Ekadasi. And that's a kinchana, Krishna Das Babaji Marsh. One of my godbrothers had been in association of some of Prabhupada's godbrothers for quite some time, and then he came back to the association of Prabhupada. And so he was discussing with Prabhupada, and Prabhupada asked what he had learned there, and he said, well, I learned that Bhaktivinoda Thakur is Kamala Manjari, and your Guru Maharaj is Nayanamani Manjari. Then Prabhupada said, oh, you have learned all those things. Yeah, you have learned that. Oh, so high. And he kind of chuckling to think about it, that he's learned those things. Just because you've heard something, what have you learned? What does that mean? What is a Manjari? <laughs> It was a very high topic. The prophet kind of humorously was, oh, you learned all those things, such high topics. And my godbrother said, Krishna was Prabhupada Maharaj Prabhupada, he was in Sakyavas or something like that. And Prabhupada said, a kinchin, Krishna was Prabhupada Maharaj. It's a of Krishna was Prabhupada So, very subtly, very wonderfully, Prabhupada was answering. Akinchan means with no material desire. That was his name. Akinchan Krishnadas Babaji Maharaj. Several would call him Babaji Maharaj, uh, Krishnadas Babaji Maharaj, and Krishnadas Babaji Maharaj, he does like this, and Prabhupada said, At the Kinchin, isn't, isn't it Akinchan? Is that the one you're talking about? Kinchan Krishnadas Babaji? Oh, yeah. Akinchana. One word. This is his Prabhupada's way of replying. So, Akinchan Krishnadas Babaji Maharaj was going to sit and do Krishnanam for the whole night of Ekadasi. So some of my godbrothers wanted to go, and they went, and they sat with them, they brought them Dunga and the cartels and the tape recorder, because he was famous for kirtan. Babaji Maharaj sitting and chanting japa, chanting japa, and they get their beads, and they're chanting japa along, and time's going on, half an hour, an hour, and then beat the drum a little bit, <clears throat> like that, and, uh, and then one of the devotees finally said, Maharaj, kirtan, kirtan, he beat the drum and said, Kirtan Marsh? Like, can we do Kirtan now? And he said, no, no, no disturbance tonight. So he could sit all night and chant Hare Krishna. And they, of course, quickly started to fall asleep and find other things to do. And the reality of their enthusiasm for Krishna Nam was revealed to be more of an enthusiasm for music. They would record the kirtan and they'd play it back and learn the beats and that kind of thing. So Babaji Maharaj very kindly and very beautifully instructed them. You don't have to say much. If you have a good disciple who listens well, you don't have to say much. He said, oh no, no disturbance tonight. I don't know what they learned, but when I heard that, I was very enlivened to hear such a thing. So, Akinchin, then we have no other desire. We can sit peacefully. What makes us get up? All those desires. That sense of self based on attachments. It's got us moving. Keep it going to keep that illusion going. Busy, busy, busy. So when through proper spiritual practice and culture and time we can sit peacefully or we can walk, that may be the case, but we can chant and think of Krishna, then it will be useful to talk about some higher topics. Then it won't be a matter of curiosity only. And it's not entirely useless to speak about them before that. But that is the time for being preoccupied with such topics. Bhaktivinotaku says a nice thing. He says, Nadiya Godrune Nityanam Namahajan Patiyachinam Hatta Jirakara. Nadiya Godrune. In Nadiya, there's a place called Godrum. Godrum is one of the nine islands that make up Nabadweep, the divine abode of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu appearing on earth. Nabadweep. Nabo means nine and Dweep means islands and they're all in and about the Ganga Delta as the Ganga filters out just before it filters out into the Bay of Bengal. Beautiful islands. Nabadweep. And they represent Nabalakshandakti, the ninefold expressions of Swarup, Siddha Bhakti, Shravanam, Kirtanam, Vishnu Smaranam, Padasevanam, Archanam, Mandanam, Dasyam, Sakyam, Atmani, Vedanam. Understand what Navadvipa is. 
each island representing the limbs of bhakti. What an auspicious place it is for spiritual practice, how it speaks to us. Navadweep speaks to us about spiritual practice. <laughs> Brindavan doesn't entirely speak to us overtly about spiritual practice. But Navadweep is not different from Brindavan. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is not different from Krishna. But there's a difference. It's something like this. He speaks to us about practice. What is more important, teaching or example? Example is better than precept. Mahaprabhu taught in this way. Apani achari bhakti sikai mushavari. Yadara achari sreshta sthattare vetarojana sayat pramanam krute roka sthadunavartate. Kaviraj Goswami has quoted this Gita Shloka with regard to Mahaprabhu in his Chaitanya Charitamrita. Yadara achari sreshta sthattare vetarojana. Or whatever a great person does, other people will follow. It means Mahaprabhu is teaching by his example. Example is more important to us than precept. Krishna gave the precepts in Bhagavad Gita. Then we pay our dandavat to that. But Chaitanya Charitamrita has detailed the life of Krishna as a practitioner. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Acharya Lila, so much more important to us. A fellow purchased a copy of this edition of Bhagavad Gita and recently wrote to me that he had studied Bhagavad Gita at some length, Gaudiya editions and so forth. He was reading this one. He found it very compelling. And in the second chapter, in, in the section, beginning of the second chapter, which we've already discussed, there's some, when Krishna begins to speak, Sri Bhagavan Uvacha, we've explained the idea of Bhagavan and we've cited Jiva Goswami's idea that Bhagavan Bhajaniya Guna Vishishta Krishna is Bhagavan, he's irresistible. It struck him, he said, the first time he'd heard it like that. Irresistible, yes. Actually, this fellow is a devotee, but he got a little disenfranchised. And so this was bringing him back. He said, yes, Krishna is irresistible. And he's a Sanskrit scholar, and it made a lot of sense to him. Krishna is irresistible. I have yet to write him back, but my, my point to make to him is, yes, Krishna is irresistible. What then to speak of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu? What to speak of this Krishna? Antar Krishna Bahir Gauram. He is Krishna inside. Outside. He's the ideal practitioner, ideal lover of Krishna. So Nadia, Navadweep, it embodies the practice that will give us Krishna consciousness. Oh, Thakur Bhakti Vinod says. Build a cottage in Navadweep, <coughs> in Godrum. Everything will come to you there. Among those nine islands, Godrum represents Kirtan, Kirtanam. So, Nadia Godrum, eh? Nityanam do Mahajan. The great person, Mahajan, Nitananda Prabhu, he can be found in Nadia Godrum. Nadia Godrum, Godrum. Godrum means, Go means. Cow, drum means tree, cow tree. <laughs> because after Krishna was crowned Govinda, Govinda by Indra, <laughs> means he's the god of the gods, Krishna, Govinda. At the end of Gobardhan Lila, when Indra realizes his mistake, then he knows he has to make some amends. But how to do that, he's not sure. He goes to Lord Brahma and asks Brahma, what to do? I've offended Krishna. I've offended Bhagwan. He's appeared as Krishna, as a cowherd with his cows on earth in this little village. And I've offended him. What to do? Brahma said, don't ask me. I offended him too. I went there. And I caused a disturbance just by being there with my four heads. Or <laughs> <laughs> to speak of trying to steal his calves and hide them and, and his coward boyfriends. And I tried to make up for it. I prayed my heart out. I paid my dandavats with all four heads. And from all four of my heads, I spoke the most eloquent prayers I could possibly speak in glorification of Krishna. 
as the Supreme Personality of Godhead, the source of Vishnu. In those prayers of Brahman, 14th chapter of 10th canto, all of Krishna consciousness can be found, the whole Siddhanta. The Krishna's two Bhagavan Sayam, this aspect at least of the Siddhanta, is fully played out there. Krishna is the Supreme Personality of God. He said, I said it, and who could have said it better than Brahma, the very personification of the Vedas, and with four heads. And he said, and after I said it, and it's a long chapter, and beautiful prayers, long prayers, pregnant with so much meaning, Siddhanta. After I said all those prayers, what did Krishna do? He just looked at me, said nothing. He just looked at me like, you fool, all these prayers, so what? You disturbed my carefree life here. <laughs> you become disturbance. He didn't say anything, but that's the implication. Brahma left. What could he tell Indra? What can I do? I did that. You tried to kill his cows. What can I tell you to do? I, I, I couldn't resolve my own situation to my satisfaction. And you tried to kill his cows. If you try to kill Krishna's cows, Krishna is what? Attached to his cows. We are our attachments. And we learn from Bhagavad Gita. Don't kill cows. Don't even think about it. Brahma made a suggestion. Go see Surabi. She's a cow, and all cows are her descendants. It's kind of the prototype cow, <laughs> Surabi. All cows are her descendants. Talk to her. He went to Sarabi, petitioned Sarabi what to do, explained himself, repentant as he was. So she said, okay, we'll go to earth. Well, actually, what Indra said was, look, I tell you what, now that you know my situation, here's what I ask. You go on down, apologize to Krishna on my behalf, because, you know, you're a cow, he'll listen to you, and I've really done the wrong thing. Sarabi said, doesn't work like that, Indraji. If someone else apologizes for you on your behalf, they may get benefit, but you won't. You've got to say it yourself. You've got to go and say it yourself, apologize yourself personally. So they went. Led by Sarabi, Indra went. And Krishna was playing with his friends. The rain was over. Everyone was back in their homes. Krishna was out with his friends, Sridham, Sudam. Subal, Stoka Krishna, Madhu Mangal. And here comes Indra, and not alone. All the gods came with him. But Krishna, sensing that, he told his friends, you wait here, I'll be right back. So he made it easy on Indra by going to a solitary place. Because if you have to come and apologize to somebody in front of all their friends and everything, that makes it even more difficult. Krishna will make it easy for us if we have the inclination to approach him humbly. They made it easy. Indra came down. Sarabhi came down. Of course, the prayers were, prayers were offered. Krishna accepted in this instance. And he was bathed then by the elephant of Indra and, and the Sarabhi cow. And Govinda Kund was made and Sarabhi Kund was made at Govardhan. And Krishna was coronated by all the gods as the god of the gods and given the name Govinda. Govinda. Go means cow. Drum means tree, Kodrum, this island. After Surabi did that, after the coronation and the Abhishek, the sacred bath of her milk, celebrating Krishna's coronation, on her way back to her planet, Surabi Lok, <laughs> she made a stop. She touched down in Navadweep at Godrum. There she instructed Markandeya Rishi, I believe, so it's named Godrum after her. It's the island of Kirtan in Navadvip. And Nityananda Prabhu set up a shop there for Kirtan. He has some affinity for that place. That is the place where Mahaprabhu would experience Gopalila in Godrum. When wandering in Godrum, he would meet the cowherd boys with their cows. And they would say, come with us. You're one of us. And he would say, no, I'm a Brahmin. How can I go herding cows? And they would say, no, you're not a Brahmin, you're one of us, we can tell. If you come back, we'll save you some cheese and some butter and special place. Nityananda Prabhu set up his shop there, appropriately. What kind of shop? By distributing the holy name. So he says, Thakur Bhakti Vinod, Nariya Godrume Nityananda Mahajan Pati Achi Nam Hatta 
Jivera Koran. He set up a marketplace for distributing the holy name in this place, to bring good fortune to people, and in the end of his song he says what? Jivedoi Krishna Nam Sarva Dharma Sar. He says, the essence of Dharma, he names two things. What are they? Krishna Nam and Jivedoi. Be kind to others. Show kindness to others. Well, how much chanting we are doing and how kind are we to others? We should put these two things together. A fellow asked me today, I'm doing Harinam. The other day he asked on the internet, I'm doing Harinam regularly, chanting. I know that's the most important thing. Is there anything else that I can do that will cause my progress? I told him this. Jive doi, Krishna nam, Sarvadharma sar. Put these two things together. Show kindness to others. We may see people who are more kind to others than us. And we're doing Krishna Nam. So what kind of Krishna Nam are we doing then? If it isn't bringing this within our hearts. So this way we have to look for our progress. When we can sit and take Krishna Nam and mind go to Krishna only, then it will be useful to hear about so many higher topics. Very useful. Otherwise, when we don't even have kindness towards others, our heart is full of so many mean things. Mean things means material desires. How can I be kind to others? I'm being cruel to myself. I'm harboring so many material desires, so many attachments. My life is a struggle. It's painful. I'm on the take. I'm not a giver. I'm too much attached to bodily identification. It's taking from me, drawing from me, demanding. So, Cheto Darpana Marjan, this is the beginning. Then it's a big hurdle to get over, but we should focus our attention there. Focus our attention on Drinada Pisuni Chena. You cannot emphasize this shloka enough. Everything will come from this. You will be able to chant constantly if you focus on this. And part of it is what? Amani Manadena. Showing respect to others. Respect, kindness to others means respecting people for what they are. They're part and parcel of Krishna. So we should not exploit them for something else. That's violence. And that's the violence that Arjun was really advocating in the name of violence because he was advocating not partaking in the war, but the war was about what? About slaying his material attachments. That's what Krishna wanted Arjun to do. Nothing short of that. Big task. <laughs> much more difficult than slaying Maharati's big warriors to slay this slippery little uh, ego fellow to catch him, imprison him, and sentence him to death. Difficult task. This is the war that Krishna wanted Arjun to take part in. Arjun was reluctant to take part in this. That, Krishna is saying, that is violence because you are perpetuating your own role in the human drama and the role of others in the human drama, which, strictly from a spiritual point of view, is self-destructive. As I mentioned earlier, even in religious life, you're not going to find yourself and be lost to yourself. Or to speak of irreligious life, just mundane life in general. So the whole show strictly from a spiritual point of view, is self-destructive. So it's violence to the soul, to the self, and that of others, perpetuating an illusory existence based on material attachments, everybody on the take to live. In terms of this identification, we have to kill. However politely, this is the strong words of Bhagavad Gita, it doesn't mean to say that, that non-violence within the human drama isn't better than overt violence. It is, and it's recommended in Bhagavad Gita as part of what comes with spiritual culture. But what Arjuna is resisting is, his arguments may be good in some sense, but if we look at the context, the context is what? He's making these arguments, resisting the war, and who's telling him to engage in it? It's Krishna. Krishna is God. Krishna has come. There's the human drama, and then there's the play of God. The play of God is the big circle, and the human drama is a small circle. But sometimes 
The big circle of the play of God comes within the small circle of the human drama. That's a very special time when that happens. That's what's going on in Bhagavad Gita. So Arjuna's arguments may be good in another context, but not when God comes on his terms and says, now it's time to give up your charade of who you think you are and to understand that you belong to me. And that time comes to us of its own accord. When it comes, it comes. And we should take note at that time. And to resist at that time, that's great violence on the soul. So Krishna's telling Arjuna, don't resist that. Fight in this battle. What kind of battle is that? As I said, this is God's play coming within the human drama. What is God's play? Ajopisan avayatman bhutanam ishvaropisan prakritin svam adishtaya sambhavami atmamayaya atmamayaya Krishna says in Gita. I come into this world by my own power, by my atmamaya, by my sorup shakti, under the influence of my own essence, my essential nature, my antaranga shakti, my swarup shakti, my internal nature, my intrinsic self. Krishna has various shaktis. The swarup shakti conducts the affairs of his, his own personal affairs and of obviously the affairs of his devotees. It is mentioned in later in Gita also. My devotees, they move under the direction of my daivim prakritim, my divine prakriti, my divine nature, my swarup shakti. They're moving under that. I come under that influence to come to this world. And prakritim sam adhishtaya prakritim sam, my own material nature, remaining in control of that, which is my position. Remaining in control of that, I come within it by my own power, by my swarup shakti. That's miraculous in and of itself. Fully in the world he is, but completely uninfluenced by it. Human, fully human-like, but fully divine at the same time. It's magical, the swarup shakti of Krishna. He says, in ninth chapter, my shakti is yogam aishvaryam. Yogam aishvaryam. It is achintya, it means. I have achintya shakti. I can do magic. I can do anything. The very fact that I am God, standing before you like a human, that's magical. I look like a human, he says. But what I'm telling you, I told the sun God. <laughs> Long time ago. Not in a different body. You can't remember it. I can I remember everything. I'm eternal. In this body, in this form, as temporal as it looks, standing before you, as human and frail as it seems, as much as I seem affected by human sentiments like love for you and my other devotees and God. It's magic. It's too magical. It doesn't make sense. It's achintya. It's inconceivable. If we get a good company, it will make sense to us. <laughs> if we don't get good company of a sadhu, it won't make sense to us. Under that influence of Surup Shakti, all magical things take place. And it, if we study Bhagavad Gita carefully, this is what Krishna wants Arjuna to come under the influence of. He doesn't want him to fight a religious war. He wants him to enter his Leela. He wants him to come under his Surup Shakti. Entirely. That's where he is. He says, come to me. And when you think of it like this, then you can understand how there can be 640 million people killed in 18 days in an area that's only a circumference of 80 miles. More people than have been killed in all the wars of modern time combined together. How is it possible? So on one side you'll have the scholars and materialists who's hear about these things and they say, well, obviously, this is just mythology. Could not have been such a war. So many people couldn't have died. There's no memorials. There's no burial grounds. You don't have 
generations of people talking about it. I mean, look at the people talking about World War II still, or World War I even. Oh, the people that died, and oh, say, you know, we got the song, everything. <laughs> These are memorable events. World War I, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War. Now you're talking about a war that makes all those wars combined seem like a street fight only. And there's no memorials, there's no burial grounds. We cannot replicate any of the sophisticated weaponry in our times. So on the one side you have the materialistic people that say, obviously this is just a myth. This didn't happen. Then you have a class of devotees say, no, it happened. There were 640 million people, they died, and then they go there and they, they try to get an archaeological uh, team of excavators and find something and the very thing that Prabhupada himself said, who cares for these archaeologists? Just finding bones. Prabhupada used to say, archaeologists, just finding bones, like dog. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> How you put everything together? What was the history? Finding some bones. Finding some bones, gluing them together, saying this is dinosaur, this is this, this is that. Right now you have devotees, even his disciples, they want to go and excavate Kurukshetra and find some way to establishing the physical reality of the war, and their faith is dependent upon it. It actually happened physically, and there were rivers of blood and, and so forth. And then the modern person is thinking, you're crazy. You're crazy. And he's thinking, you don't have faith. We should try to come in the middle of all this. And this is the answer. You cannot demonstrate the historicity of this war. You cannot demonstrate by the science, if you want to call it that, or the discipline, let's say, of history, you cannot demonstrate that that war ever took place, really. At least not with that magnitude. You cannot demonstrate that. You shouldn't think that you have to. You should think this. This is a historical event, the Battle of Kurukshetra, but it's a history of Krishna Leela. What is Krishna Leela? Krishna Leela is under the influence of the Swarup Shakti, it's when the play of God comes within the human drama and anything can happen at that time. So did the battle happen? Yes and no at the same time. Both things. Everybody died, got liberated. What kind of violence is that? The action that Krishna calls Arjun to is not action that's born out of the necessity arising from material attachments. When we have material attachments, we have a necessity to work, to get busy. Therefore, sometimes people reason wisely that, well, if you don't have any necessity, you don't have to work, you don't have to get up, sit down, be peaceful. Spiritual life must be about no desire. And the Bhagavad Gita reasons well along those lines very clearly. It's, it's, it's true. If you don't have any desire, then you can be peaceful. Then why move? Why are we moving? Why do you move? We have some attachment, some desire, an identity that's arisen from that, that needs to be maintained and uh, satisfied and so forth. So, why move? Bhagavad Gita reasons like that, but it reasons more as well. Krishna asks Arjuna to move, doesn't he? He doesn't ask him to sit still. He asks him to move, move under the influence of my Swarup Shakti, which is a movement as I've said before, in celebration of fullness, of completeness. This is Krishna Leela. If you're so full, so satisfied, then you get up and dance, celebrating. That is Krishna Leela. It's a dance. The walking is dancing. The talking is singing. What must be the singing? What must be the dancing? What is the war? In a drama, no one really dies and no one really gets hurt. And in Krishna's play, Krishna Leela, no one really dies and no one really gets hurt. And there can be a war of immense bloodshed and no trace. How can we verify this war? That is what Bhagavad Gita teaches, by love, by bhakti yoga. By the yoga of bhakti, we can experience that. You can experience it. You can live in Bhagavad Gita, in the Leela aspect of Bhagavad Gita. You can be poised at the edge of the battlefield and hear Krishna speak to Arjuna and hear the swords and the conch shells. Much more real than the sounds and noises and movements and lights of 
of San Francisco. You can stay there forever. So this is what Krishna wants Arjuna to enter into, his Leela. It's a drama of violence in relation to Bhagavad Gita, but no one really gets hurt. So when we empty our heart out of all material ambitions, come under the direction of Guru and Krishna, Guru and Goranga completely, then we can be in this world and not of it. It's a very esoteric idea, how to be fully immersed in the world and unaffected by it. First we have to step back from it, detachment and so forth, then enter into it with love. Loving all things for what they are, understanding their relationship with God and so forth, everything becomes friendly. In Sridhar Maharaj's language, the environment is friendly. Krishna Leela is extraordinary and so high, and the person who enters into it has to be so high. This is what it wants to tell us. You have to become like Krishna, is the point. You have to become godlike. Arjuna is as awestruck by what Krishna wants him to be in terms of being a devotee as he is by the war that he's faced with, if not more. My God, all that I must be. This is what you want of me. You study it, what Krishna wants of us, what he wanted of Arjuna. All that's required. That kind of person, so kind, so detached, aloof, so selfless, so peaceful. There can be such a person that he could kill 640 million people and not be implicated in any reaction for it. The contrast is being made. This is how high my devotee is. This is what I want you to be. What kind of person is that? What kind of idea is that, you see? Very, very, very high. This is our prospect. And that we would not have to kill anybody. We have to kill one thing, your ego. And I said, as I say, it's more difficult than killing 640 million people. He's saying, theoretically, it's possible. You could kill your own relatives, and it wouldn't be violence. You could be engaged in such a way, so selflessly, that whatever you do is a benefit to others. Now, that's not going to come to pass that we have to do that, obviously. This is the point. So, this section of these verses is very important because it should be singled out to demonstrate that this is not what the Bhagavad Gita is about. It's not about a jihad at all. And as I mentioned, these verses, this section of eight verses, concludes with the eighth verse here. Krishna says, Considering pleasure and pain, gain and loss, victory and defeat to be equal, Prepare yourself for battle without fear of incurring sin. The note Krishna ends the section on is yoga. And now he will talk about yoga at some length, practically for the rest of the book. Where does yoga come in? Sukuduke same kritva. Same kritva. This is yoga. Sama equanimity. Balance. This is what yoga is about. This verse, number 38, is explained in verse 48. Krishna says, Yogastha guru karmani sangam chaktva dhananjaya siddhi asidayo samo putva samatvam yoga uchate. Perform your duty fixed in the yoga of action abandoning all attachment to success or failure, a winner of wealth, such equanimity of mind is what is meant by yoga. So if you didn't understand it here, Krishna is reiterating it in verse 48. That equanimity of mind, detachment from success or failure, pleasure, pain, gain or loss, be equal in this. How to do that? That's yoga. So even while he's speaking about Fight. He's answering Arjuna's questions about Dharma, why you shouldn't fight, why it's religious not to fight. Krishna's saying, no, it's irreligious not to fight. Be religious to fight. Even while he's answering on the level of Dharma, as he concludes his reply in that regard, he takes us in the direction of yoga and bhakti yoga, which is what Bhagavad Gita is really about. So, any question?
qualities that we see in, in everyday people that we might not even have ourselves. Do those qualities come in us first before which comes first? So we have some devotion. Regardless of how bad we are, that's the generosity of bhakti that she may come to us, even the vilest person. It's possible, and that's significant. So it's a kind of a, a mix. Actually, the spiritual progress is its uh, very interesting because we kind of get some footing there. By whatever we do, we get some footing there. But to be firmly standing on that plane of our ideal, that will only happen when all those other things come within us gradually. But it's not that we don't go anywhere. We're cultivating a siddha even unbeknown to us, by our hearing and chanting. It's developing. This siddha this swarupa of ours, it exists eternally. It's not a product of time. It's eternally existing. It's dormant. And by engaging in bhakti, hearing and chanting, it comes to life. So it's coming to life. If our chanting is not very good, it's offensive, then it will take a long time. But it's coming to life. It's such a high thing, our real nature is developing invisibly in the invisible stages of, of its development, something like that. And here we are on the human plane, and we should be developing kindness to others and these type of qualities and so forth, as I mentioned. They may be lacking. It's not that nothing's going on there at the same time, but they all come together at some point. As I say, we should look for progress on a lower level, visible progress. And, and if you see good quality in others, then who's showing you that? Why are you seeing that? It stands out to you. It's being pointed out to you. You should be like that. Oh, I should be like that. You, know, you try to incorporate that into your life. Krishna's pointing it out to you. Srimad Bhagavad Gita ki jai, Sisi Krishna Arjun ki jai, Shilasi Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada ki jai, Bhakti Rakshak Siddha Dev Goswami Maharaj ki jai, Bhakti Siddhanta Sasti Thakur Prabhupada ki jai, Bhakti Vinod Puribar ki jai, Gaur Bhaktivedanta ki jai, O Premanandi.